Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us again. Well, that's presumptuous. Maybe this is the first time. So maybe there is no again. Maybe this is like you saw this uh, this sort of uh, advertisement or some sort of link for the podcast, and you thought that is weird. What are those guys about? Well, if that's you, uh, let's introduce ourselves. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a uh, pastor. I serve a church here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, right outside of Portland, and I've written some books. In fact, I just saw the cover for my new book on Bombadil, and I'm sharing that in different platforms, and people seem to like it a lot, so I'm very pleased about that. I'm told that that book will be out uh, in uh, early November. So that's uh, that's that. I've done some other things. I've been a um, professor of philosophy. I've been a, a real estate investor. Yada, yada, yada. Enough about me. How about you, Tom? Tell us, tell everybody about yourself. Um, uh, Tom Price. Uh, I teach systematic theology, um, teach uh, Christian ethics, philosophy uh, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. Um, working on a book right now. Um, it's kind of a bridge between uh, Christian theology and evangelical metaphysics of creation and ethics as they relate to issues that are raised with the ever-increasing technological world. So that's fun, and that's forthcoming. (laughs) All right, great. Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm Professor Emeritus of History at Central Connecticut State University, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associate with Reflections Ministries, and a few other things. All right, great. Well, it's it's my day today. So, you know, as I was thinking about what could we talk about, uh, it occurred to me that there was uh, there was something in a book that I just finished up uh, I, that I thought uh, would be uh, a great you know topic for discussion. I'm a uh, a real uh, I guess fanboy. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's the way to say it. Maybe just a uh, uh, aficionado, maybe just a, you know someone who appreciates this person uh, f- uh, for Christopher Lash. Now, Christopher Lash, uh, uh, he was a, uh, a pretty significant public intellectual in the last couple of decades of the 20th century. Uh, he died before the turn of the century, uh, but he had a remarkably uh, significant influence on me and, and the way I think. Uh, he's probably best you know, known for a book he wrote that was published in the late 70s called The Culture of Narcissism. And uh, I imagine that uh, some folks who you know, were actually alive in those days and uh, were adults may have heard that title before. But anyway, Culture of Narcissism uh, was, a, was sort of like his uh, kind of coming out party in terms of uh, his uh, position as a public intellectual in, our, in, in uh, the United States. He was uh, a red diaper baby. Uh, he had grown up in a, uh, a home uh, that uh, was very much on the left. Uh, his father, if I remember correctly, was an editor for the Chicago Tribune. But uh, he went to Har- he went to Harvard. He was uh, roommates with John Updike, Rabbit Run, and all those those mm, novels. Right. Uh, so anyway, can you imagine can you imagine yeah. you know those two guys down the hall from you at Harvard, you know, and you know I imagine they had some <laughs> you know late night conversations that were probably pretty fascinating. But <laughs> he w- he went on. Uh, I think he got his PhD at Columbia. Uh, and I think he taught at Columbia for a while, but then I think he was up in upstate New York in Rochester. I think that he, and he's an historian. So he's, he's someone in uh, your discipline, uh, Glenn. 
And uh, he was a remarkably uh, incisive uh, thinker, and and he was a great observer, uh, sort of trends in you know American life and culture, and uh, really uh, when it came to sort of his ability to to sort of see the big picture and trace out developments and sort of trends in American culture. Um, and Western culture, uh, generally he was tough to beat, but the thing that really intrigued me most about him is like, uh, many of the best thinkers on the right, he was a repentant Marxist. So he, as I noted, was a red diaper baby, grew up on the, in the left, that kind of thing. Then, uh, uh, was sort of disaffected, uh, or disillusioned by what he saw on the left. Uh, he moved in a conservative direction, but never really fully uh, sort of embraced, I guess, neoliberalism or some of the things that we associate with, say, well, the, you know, the, the Austrian school in economics, you know, and all of that. So he was never really fully on board with, say, the Reagan uh, revolution or anything along those lines, Barry Goldwater, et cetera. But he was more kind of old right, I guess you could say. He, he, he was kind of sort of uh, oriented toward Tradition. He thought tradition was tremendously important uh, and uh, provided kind of a, I guess, a structure within which is, you know, a, a civilization um, can function. And uh, he was a great advocate uh, of the household uh, and, the, and sort of family life, uh, generally speaking, but particularly in its um, economic and um, practical role uh, that, it, that it plays in our, in our world. So uh, I have a great deal of affection for Christopher Lash. Uh, the last book he wrote is a book entitled The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy. And I think it came out in 1996 or 7. And I read it while I was at Harvard. So, uh, you know, it was one of those books. I, I, I was already into Lash. And it was um, a lot of the things that he said in the, in the book were things that I uh, – kind of already were, you know, had, had already heard, uh, you know, before from him, but, and from other people, but it was a marvelously, uh, well-crafted book and prescient in so many ways. The world that, that Lash describes in the revolt of the elites is the world that we live in today. He saw it all coming. And, uh, anyway, I'd like to react to a particular chapter in the book, the last chapter, the 13th chapter of the book, and the title of that book or that chapter is The Soul of Man Under Secularism. The Soul of Man Under Secularism. Now, Lash, um, he doesn't give us any very clear indication that he's a Christian. In fact, I think one of the things that he said at near the end of his life is that, uh, well, let me paraphrase it. I'm a Jansenist without hope. Uh, meaning that, you know, he had a kind of disposition that would be very, I guess, uh, congenial to many of our Reformed listeners. He, by the way, uh, praised Jonathan Edwards. He thought Jonathan Edwards was uh, perhaps the greatest mind that our nation had ever produced. Um, he quotes uh, from Edwards' book on virtue in uh, the, revolt, the Revolt of the Elites. But, but the, the, the title of the chapter, uh, The Soul of Man Under Secularism, is itself a riff on something by Oscar Wilde, uh, something he wrote entitled The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Anyway, I'd like to talk about the presentation that Lash, ma Lash makes of 
Oscar Wilde's, uh, you know, uh, you know, work because I think with Wilde and his, you know, sort of his outlook and the things that he hoped that socialism pro, you know, could, could deliver, uh, we see all around us today with a lot of young people. And so anyway, when you see the, you know, the, you know, uh, the affection or the sort of the, um, um, I'm trying to get my, this is one of the worst, this is one of the bad things about Kindle. I mean, it goes off on you. So I had, I had my <laughs> Kindle on and to the section that I wanted, you know, when you have a, just an old fashioned book, you know, pay, you just put it down and there's your book. But with Kindle, you get shut off. But anyway, that's that. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts or, you know, about Wild, about Lash, about this subject, but if you do, let's hear him before we jump into some really provocative uh, stuff from Oscar Wilde through Christopher Lash. You know, one thing to remember is that um, through the 19th century, when you talk about socialism, you're not necessarily talking about Marx. Right. So it is important to remember that there are a variety of schools of socialism out there in that period. And I'm not sure which one uh, Wilde was or wasn't reacting to. So. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you'll hear it in a minute because, uh, yeah. well, and, and, I, and I know, now, and I don't remember, uh, you know, because I know Wilde was, uh, had, had, you know, a bit of a, uh, a process of change going on. Um, he was, you know, um, pretty obnoxious and, and, uh, and perverted. <laughs> um, and, uh, of course, he was always flaunting himself in, in, in the rules. But on the other hand, he ended up having a profound kind of uh, maybe a return to, to Catholicism. Um, I, uh, but I don't know at what phase, you know, I, I don't remember at what phases all of these things took place. Um, and I don't know where this would fall in, in relationship to kind of that, that, uh, that line of things. But I know, I know he was controversial. Uh, all the way through. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so he was tried for indecency because of unnatural acts with men. So that gives you a sense of what the world was like at that time and what Wild was like. But uh, there is a well, there is a uh, belief among some people that uh, Wild had a deathbed conversion, and that that's something that's. Um, uh, you know, been debated and there are people who don't think that's what happened. There are other people who, who do believe that's what happened. But anyways, it's not, uh, unchallenged. I know that, uh, that, uh, yeah. uh it's something that a lot of folks in, in our circles, uh, you know, are, are, uh, at least hopeful happened, but that's, that's, I think, you know, a good point that you brought out that, you know, he was all over the place and at the different points of his life, you know, seemed to promote different things. And uh, anyway, so I've got, a, I've got a few things I'd like to read here that I think give us plenty to talk about. So this, this is Lash, and he's addressing uh, the subject of socialism and Wilde. So here, here's what Lash says. Socialism, as Wilde understood it, was simply another name in 1891 in the social circles in which Wilde was at home a deliberate, a deliberately provocative name for the elimination of drudgery by machines. Wilde had no patience with those who proclaimed the dignity of labor. Quote, there is nothing necessarily dignified about manual labor at all. And 
most of it is absolutely degrading. So we see a number of things going on here that are worth thinking about. One is this association with with uh, socialism and, and uh, machines, and that that kind of makes some sense in the sense that you know the industrial revolution is the is the sort of the the ferment or the uh, the, the the sort of the world in which socialism, communism, and so forth uh, find find their uh, expression and the, their champions. But then there's this other, there's this other dimension here, which is absolutely kind of the antithesis of what you, you would you hear from most socialists or Marxists, uh, the contempt for manual labor. Now, I, this is something I, I think is worth, um, kind of keeping in the back of our minds, uh, as we go forward here. Now, here's another, here's something else from Lash talking about Wild and his well, hold, hold on. sure, you, sure, Chris. Chris, yep. before yep. you go on, I, I would like a definition of what he means by manual labor. There, right? If he's talking about going out and digging a ditch or something like that, that's one thing. If he's talking about handcrafting a pair of shoes, that's a different thing. Yeah, I so don't. What, what exactly is he referring? Yeah, I can't say with you know with complete certainty what he's talking about. But I think this next quote will help to, I think, resolve uh, or at least give us a strong indication that he meant all the above. <laughs> In other words, uh, uh, Wilde didn't have any, you know, sort of interest uh, or or sort of sympathy for anything that could be, uh, I guess, remotely associated with the bourgeoisie or with uh, traditional crafts or whatever. So here's the next here's the next quotation. This is, again, Lash talking about Wilde. If manual labor was degrading, property was a bore. You can almost you know, kind of sense the, the tone, the, the accent, the dismissiveness, in which, in Wilde's opinion, quote, this is Wilde, its duties make it unbearable. Now, here's, here's the tongue-in-cheek with Wilde. In the interest of the rich... We must get rid of it. <laughs> In other words, the wealthy were the ones who owned property. He wanted to liberate them from the management of property because the management of property made them boring. <laughs> so then it goes on. He goes on. To, uh, this is Lash again. No less than manual labor, the administration of, pro- of property distracted people from the real business of life. And here's the real business of life, according to, to Wilde, the cultivation of and the enjoyment of personality. Okay, just let that kind of uh, sink yeah. in. So, you know, you, you get where I'm going with this, right? So, you know, David Brooks, a few years ago, wrote a book entitled, uh, I, I guess, something about the Bobos. You remember that one? Uh, the Bohemian Bourgeoisie, this idea that, you know, uh, what we have, you know, in our time is the coming together of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I guess free expression and you know sort of self-absorption with uh, affluence and you know uh, kind of uh, you know neoliberalism and and you know capitalism. These two things have come together, and and it, it, when you go to a place like New York or San Francisco or you know any of the you know world-class cities where the creatives live. That's what you you see. You see, uh, you know, this um, fusion of things that people, I guess, 
never before anticipated coming together. And I think that's kind of what we see here with, with Wild. Um, he, he celebrates socialism because he believes that the material needs, uh, you know, that we have are, are going to be satisfied through this sort of collectivist approach so that we have the free time to all be artists, you know, artists, you know, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So anyway, so here, here's, here's uh, Wilde talking about personality. So this is what he would like to see more of, and which I think we have plenty of today. So he says, quote, uh, speaking of personality, it will grow naturally and simply, flower-like, whereas a tree grows. It will never argue or dispute. It will not always be meddling with others or asking them to be like itself. It will love them because they will be different. The personality of man will be very wonderful. It will be as wonderful as the personality of a child. Now, what I see in that is childishness. <laughs> what, you know, my, my, own, my own sense is that Wilde uh, would like to just sort of have us all live lives as you know, children in some kind of, well, I guess, uh, finger painting uh, class. You know, where we're all kind of just putting ourselves on display for one another and appreciating uh, all of the beauty that is on display that is, you know, sort of unaffected, very much in the spirit of the sort of the outlook that I think we've talked about before with, say, Rousseau, uh, uh, you know, kind of a contempt for discipline, contempt for all that stuff. You can, you can hear definitely as several elements coming together. And then remember some of the context of, of Wilde was, you know, he, he was, an, if I remember, he was a, a Oxford, uh, a, a yep. indulged Oxford student um, at a time of indulgence among Oxford students when the academic side wasn't the, 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 the side that was emphasized. Although to their, to their credit, they tended to be pretty well-read and good writers. I mean, they had the, that, that context going for them, at least in terms of not necessarily reading what they have as good, but they could write. Um, mm -hmm. But here we have the, you have on the one hand, this kind of, um, yes, this, this romanticism that's still flowering in the air, which was really big around that time in, in that environment of, you have sort of a developmental understanding or organic understanding uh, of, of, of life, then you have this kind of childlike simplicity as the kind of the, the ideal, right? The, um, before, before it's corrupted by, by uh, something else. There's your Rousseau. And then you have it kind of tied to a kind of egoist, you know, egocentrism um, that is about, you know, one's self, you know, self-expression and one's uh, per own personality. So, you know, cult of personality starts to, to become something uh, mm -hmm. that grows out of this. So you have all this, this stuff that really doesn't cohere well. Um, and then here, this is kind of put in the middle of a socialism that could never, never sustain itself with a bunch, by a bunch of that kind of product. <laughs> right. right. And it, it also strikes me to go back to um, Lash's first major book, it strikes me that what he wants is a culture of narcissism. Yeah. You know, he yeah. is, he is a narcissistic himself and he wants everybody to be like him, which will not only affirm him, 
but will also keep him infinitely amused. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, I think that's it, yeah. You know, it strikes me as just being incredibly effete and all, well, narcissistic, all kinds of other things. Right. And, right. you know, the, the idea here that, that everybody would be happy in that kind of a situation, you know, that there aren't people who genuinely enjoy working with their hands, um, you know, is silly. The idea that you could have an economically productive, a world so economically productive that everybody could live without working is, on the face of it, absurd. Right, right. I guess, you know, one, one of the things we could say is, is uh, you know, obviously he's a, a member of a social class and he's pretty uh, blind to what, what, you know, sort yeah. of people outside that class. And that's one of the things that Lash, you know, states, uh, you know, in that first quotation that I, that I read, that, you know, for, for uh, Wilde, what he's describing is essentially, you know, sort of this fantasy land uh, that he's comfortable living in. And he's not really, I guess, capable of appreciating uh, the very things that you just you just brought up, Glenn. I think there is a kind of um, parallel in our time. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about you know what Carl Truman you know, has has uh, presented to us in that that great book that he just uh, published not too long ago, "The Triumph of the Modern Self." Uh, and I think we see some of this, I guess, maybe an embryo, you know, in the late 19th century. Um, you know, I was thinking about this. Who's the, the original hippie? You know, is it Thoreau? <laughs> is it, um, you know, Walt Whitman? Is it, uh, you know, uh, Oscar Wilde? Uh, you know, who, who is the, or is it Rousseau? You know, who is the original hippie? Uh, <laughs> you know, and then. I vote Rousseau. Right. Oh, so I vote Rousseau for just about everything. Yeah. Or get, everything uh, dark and sinister. Uh, gal- <laughs> Who's the one in, who actually took took Rousseau, uh, the, the painter, uh, Gauguin, right? Who took Rousseau oh, so man. seriously that he went for a small period of time to go live with the quote unquote noble savage and ended up leaving right. very quickly. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. It, it wasn't yeah. so noble. It was more savage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like I remember when I lived in Cambridge, um, we had, uh, you know, a, an environment in which everybody uh, had the pretense of being an artist. In fact, we had kind of the Walmart of art stores, uh, there, you know, it's, it's one of these things, you know, you think about Walmart where you, where you get all of, uh, the things that you need for, I guess, your home and your, your yard, uh, cheap. Uh, and you know, the reason you can have things as inexpensively as you, as you have in Walmart is just because of the volume that, you know, they're able to, to work with and consequently they bring down prices. Generally speaking, when it comes to like art supplies, stuff like that, you know, uh, brushes, paints, et cetera, you know, you're, you're dealing with some pretty, you know, sort of specialty, um, you know, sort of shops that provide the, those goods and they tend to be pricey. But when I lived there in the, in the nineties, we saw, uh, this sort of superstore open in central square where you could get your brushes and your, in, you know, in bulk, <laughs> all those kinds of, and it, and it really, mm-hmm. it really was uh, the right place to open a shop like that because everybody thought uh, he or she was an artist. And uh, 
quality of the mm-hmm. art that they produce was pretty low. I mean, when you democratize art, which it, which you actually end up doing is not sort of see you don't you don't see everybody become you know Rodin or like Da Vinci or anything like that. Basically, what you see is just a lot of people uh, who maybe uh, really are just advanced finger painters <laughs> doing artsy things. And, that, <laughs> and that's what you have in, in a situation like that. But the self-understanding, though, that I am an artist uh, carries over into what Carl talks about and what, you know, actually Lash talks about here in the sense that the the canvas uh, is not just simply this object outside of yourself that you paint on. You are the canvas. Uh, Wild thought of himself as the yeah. canvas. Many of these people think of themselves as the canvas. Yeah. I am working on me, you know, sort of my, my, ex- yeah. you know, sort of expressing myself, uh, you know, sort of, sort of making my statement, what have you, but I'm the art. And I think that's really what, you know, Wilde is addressing when he talks about personality, he's talking about the person as the art. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So, um, here's, yeah, here's I th- something I think that- it has an appeal again I was going to say, I think it has an appeal to the adolescent mind. I mean, I I remember when uh, my oldest was a teen and I remember him coming in one day and going through all that, you know, need for attention, saying, I want to be a walking piece of art, you know, and I knew exactly (laughs) where that was coming from. But but it's just interesting that this, you know, most people grow out of it as he did, um, whereas uh, this was considered a life end for for these people. Right, right. And I, and I remember, you know, the 60s, I was alive in those days. And, you know, we actually had hippies who roomed in our house. And, you know, I, I, I just have all, have, have all this stuff kind of in, my, in the back of you know, my, my mind when I think about the 60s. But um, the, the connection between an agitator, sort of political agitator and an artist is something that Wilde perceived, but I think also is brought to the surface here, you know, uh, by, by Lash in a, in a, in a great way, uh, in this chapter, let me just read you another portion here. And it gives us something more to think about. So speaking of agitators, political agitators, um, Lash says they shared with artists, a hatred of authority, a contempt for tradition and refusal to court popular favor. Agitators and artists were the supreme embodiment of individualism, wishing only to please themselves. They took no notice whatever of the public, nor did they pay the slightest attention to the, quote, sickly cant about doing uh, what other people want because they want it, or any hideous cant about self-sacrifice. So it's really, you know, uh, clearly uh, about the self and the uh, sort of the collision or sort of maybe the collusion, that's a better way to put it. The collusion of political agitators with artists is something that goes back maybe further than we appreciate or, or seem, seem to have a sense for. But anyway, any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, my, my first inclination when you read the quote from from Wilde is that he seemed singularly unaware in some sense of what art really is. 
um, he, it strikes me that he sort of trivialized it as just being about, you know, uh, personality and all of that kind of thing, which is a very modern way of thinking about art. Um, and I think Lash is sort of picking up on that in the direction he's going with this. Um, it seems to me that art, if it's going to have any kind of meaning at all, I mean, I've, I've struggled with this, trying to work out a definition of art in my own mind. And I've, I've, at the moment, at least, I've concluded it is something like uh, a method of communication that doesn't use normal discourse, that doesn't lay things out and explain them. Um, and so art is meant to actually say something. It's meant to actually communicate something. But it doesn't do it in an explicit laid out, explicit laid out way. I mean, that, that's more or less where, where my thinking is on this. And it connects as well to beauty and all of those kinds of things, which are things that Wilde would just simply ignore in favor, I think, of something that would he would find shocking or titillating or amusing or something like that. It really trivializes the entire conception of art, it seems to me. Yeah, I think, I think though, I think you're right in the sense that I think um, Wilde is a kind of forerunner of the cult of personality that um, we kind of see in the art world today. You know, today artists are all about self-expression. They're not uh, they're not interested in communicating truths or beauty uh, or you know anything that has a, some kind of transcendent character, anything that could be universal. I think maybe the last stand of universalism was abstraction, but what you have now is is that. But he was he you know in the Romantic period there was still you know he he still has some I think uh, aspiration to communicate the beautiful. Um, but you can see that it's mingled with this other kind of thing, the personality that I think is, uh, eclipsing that. So he's, I think a kind of a transitional figure in that respect, but you're definitely right. This is what we have today. And this is what you can see in embryo with wild is, you know, uh, like when you think about today, when I, I think one of the reasons why poetry is so, I guess, um, sort of dismissed as, you know, it, it, people no longer see its significance is because poets in the past believed they were communicating truths that could only be accessed through poetry. They weren't theaters yeah. of, uh, for your personality or your political sort of, yeah. um, I guess, uh, you know, sort of anger uh, or, or frustrations, you know, like it is there today, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, poetry is all about, rage or about some kind of weird yeah. sort of thing that you're doing to sort of talk about your, some, some aspect of your inner world or life that's transgressive and needs to get out and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it lacks, you know, the, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go here, but I mean, the way in which um, poetry, for example, has been very reduced to, um, rather than the wider earlier concepts or um, the old literary approach um, to art or or poetry or anything else was um, the ancients, of course, the old mimesis and then later poiesis, the poetic. And I think Truman actually applies this to the self-understanding of the human later. And that's sort of what you have going on where older forms of, of art aim to to. Um, to to imitate, if you will, reality in some way. Um, and so, so for, for a human being to, um, 
to correspond with that larger reality vision, um, to to imitate it, their place in it, um, that was considered um, being good art <laughs> um, and and, right. and being um, tr- truthfully enacting what one is. Whereas later, as that kind of breaks down, and then it, it becomes more focused on the expressive um, and the constructive, um, and that that changes all of that. And I think that is, I think what you see with Wild is that stuff starting to to um, take on a, a familiar form to us now. Yeah, in fact, uh, what uh, we have with Wild and and Lash gets into this is. Uh, even the sort of reconstrual of the, theolo- the theological enterprise in the, I guess, uh, image of the artist. So uh, let me read you another passage here uh, from Lash in which he's drawing on Wilde, and uh, you'll see what I'm getting at. So um, Lash says, all the great leaders in history, according to Wilde, had the artistic temperament. Jesus Christ himself was an artist with an artist's message <laughs> to the world. Quote, he said to man, you have a wonderful personality. <laughs> Develop it. Be yourself. <laughs> and of course, that was wild. Uh, wild he's, he's quoting, he's quoting wild there. In his De Profundis, a long letter to Lord Alfred Douglas written six years later from the depths of his imprisonment in reading Gaol, uh, Wilde uh, a- uh, amplified this interpretation of, quote, Christ as the precursor of the romantic movement in life, end of quote. And the, quote, most supreme individualists, uh, most supreme of individualists, end of quote, having, quote, created himself, end of quote, out of his, quote, o- his own imagination, end of quote. Jesus of Nazareth preached the power of imagination as the, quote, basis of all spiritual and material life, end of quote, according to Wilde. He preached imaginative, uh, that's my, here we go, imaginative sympathy, not altruism, uh, but his own powers of sympathetic identification made him the mouthpiece of the entire world of the inarticulate, the voiceless world of pain. His life, as recorded in the Gospels, was just like a work of art. He belonged with the poets, and his chief war was against the Philistines, not the Pharisees, the Philistines. <laughs> the war, <laughs> the war that every child, yeah, every child of light has to wage, end of quote. There were sprinkled through that, by the way, a lot of different quotations. I just, I, I just thought it was getting a little bit much for me to say, you know, quote, end of quote all the time. But there was a lot of stuff drawn directly from, from Wilde there. So let me go back and just finish this uh, reading. Uh, Even in the depths of his own public uh, degradation and despair, Wilde saw no reason to modify what he had written in The Soul of Man Under Socialism. <clears throat> that he who would lead a Christ-like life must be entirely and absolutely himself as he put it in his earlier text, the message of Christ to man was simply, be thyself. That is the message of Christ, according to Wilde, that is. So anyway, again, more quotes sprinkled uh, throughout that that reading. But everything that uh, sounds, uh, I guess, uh, cloying, that was wild. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, anyway, go ahead, Glenn. It, it almost reminds me of some of the stuff you get from people like Harvey Cox, <laughs> I and, knew Harvey, um, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, but but Har- Har- Harvey Cox, um, 
it, it's almost the Jesus is hippie that you get in Godspell, things like that. Yeah, I mean, right, it's, right. it's it, the, the, yeah, he'd, he'd have fit right in there. Yeah, he really would have. And, if, and you, when you see pictures of Wild, I mean, he just comes across as just, I mean, the esthete on steroids, but maybe steroids isn't the right word. <laughs> but you get my point. Well, and it, I mean, he's just, he's over the on top. mushrooms. Yeah, I think, sorry, he's over the top. There's, um, there's an interesting thing that he, he has going on there, though. And, I mean, I, I think on the one hand, um, being at a time that has, is now pretty much removed from a lot of the romantic context, um, I do appreciate his... Um, interest in imagination and his interest in some of these things that has now been been wrong but it, it's it's the governing um metaphysic that's the problem here um notice what he says he says you know the issue you know the command is basically um, not know know thyself right um be thyself um but for him being being you know what you are um, it is not as, you know, the Gospels teach and then the Epistles teach that um, who you are now in Christ, right? I mean, that's what the Gospels be who you are truly in Christ. There's the imitative and then there is the, the participatory going on and then there's everything tied up with um, Christ's person and work. But what's going on here is that, that I mean, the God, you know, the New Testament is talking about the proper ends for which we are to orient ourselves to truly be who we now are because of Christ and his work. What Wilde has going on here is he is defining the ends for himself. Um, and, and the ends are his sort of imaginatively construed self-definition, ungoverned by any larger reality or, or, or any Christ-likeness. Um, and so, so you, you have under all his um, revisionist theology there, um, a revisionist view of, of what it means to be human and what human purposes are. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I know, I'm sure that you you guys have um, friends, uh, maybe friends is not the term, uh, acquaintances, uh, family members uh, who really are, you know, sort of embodiments of this way of thinking that we see on display with with uh, with wild, you know, if I were to show people in podcast land uh, photographs of my extended family, they would just be astounded because <laughs> <laughs> they, they they just live out this stuff all the time. And um, you know, I think one of the challenges that we have is, you know, uh, how do we reach these people? I mean, uh, wild is kind of a, uh, I think, a forerunner, but uh, he's multiplied. We have these people all around us today. And it's a challenge to, I think, uh, just a, a practical matter of how do we how do we connect with these people in a way that doesn't fuel their insanity? You know, um, because even when you bring up matters related to the spirit uh, uh, and truth, it's being filtered through uh, a way of thinking that re sort of re uh, sort of works everything in a way that actually reinforces the very thing you're trying to undermine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like Wilde is saying that the chief end of man is to glorify man and enjoy him forever. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I think know, that's right. So, so the question is how, how, again, that's the narcissism coming out. How do you break through to that? How do you right. break through that? Right. Now, you know, getting back to this whole matter of socialism, uh, socialists, of course, love to march, you know, uh, and demonstrate on behalf of the oppressed. 
and the the oppressed could be <laughs> you know uh, you know the working class although you don't see that much anymore uh or some you know uh i guess ethnic group or some uh you know sort of sexual minority or, or what have you um Today, and, today and, the oppressed is the microaggressed. I mean, that's pretty much right, right. the microaggressed. Right. It's not any anyone you, genuinely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but what you see yeah. going on when you agree, Tom and Glenn, is that somehow these folks have been able to, uh, I guess, harmonize or synergize that with their own self-expression. So, in a weird way, uh, social concerns are the same thing as sort of the celebration of personality. You know, these, yes. these things kind of come together in a way. Well, I think that was, I think that was the, the evil genius behind this, this new variant of, of uh, socialism or, or Marxism or whatever, is, is that it, it was able to wed those two things together, the, the kind of egocentric um, and self-expressive with with the political um and the personal and the political um sorry glenn i didn't mean to cut you off there no that's that, that that's quite all right the the um you know the personal is the political is the slogan of the old feminists right right and in the current version of identity politics your identity is determined by your intersectional categories that is to say the particular set of approved oppressions that you fall under or don't mm-hmm. Um, and that really defines everything that there is about you. The weird thing is that with um, within the world of critical theory, you don't exist really as an autonomous, independent agent. All you are is a representative of your various groups, and everything about you is determined by that, um, which means that the personal isn't really personal in a, in a big way. Uh, what it really is is just simply intersectional, and then that turns it political. So it, it's kind of a weird thing, but I, but I, I do agree with you that it is such an incoherent way of seeing the world that nobody really lives that way, with the net result that they merge their own particular self-identity, self-concept of who they are and all of that into a political agenda um, that's ultimately rooted not in aesthetics or beauty or personality or anything like that, but in the raw exercise of power. Yeah, I think that, that, you know, you have that definitely with sort of the, the hardcore intersectional folks. But I think that there is a kind of penumbra, you know, this sort of uh, thing that surrounds this, where you have the beautiful people uh, for whom these causes are kind of like accessories, like a Gucci purse or something like, or like a, a fancy dog. And and they sort of, they, they put these things on uh, to sort of, uh, I guess, enhance their their appeal, their sort of, and as means of expression. And if you challenge them at all, uh, if you say, you know, uh, that's not really you, <laughs> uh, or that, uh, is not really true. It doesn't really matter because it's, it's, it's a, it's not necessarily, uh, intended to serve that purpose. It's more or less something that is intended to be, like I said, an accessory, something you carry around with you. Now, yeah, you, know, you, you, you have you think- this. Mm-hmm. I was going to say you have this. You have this way in which the accidental, to use old language, the accidental becomes considered essential because we're considered not to have anything essential about us. 
So we're right. defined now by those things that, that aren't essential to us. And then we, we, we try to make them that. That's why they're so fragile, by the way, because, because the, and that's why they need uh, social control to hold that, that fragile identity in place, because those things aren't essential. That's, that's something that, that has, to be, um, has to be basically controlled in order to, to sustain that kind of self-definition or, or anything else. I mean, think of, it, think of it another way. Even when we talk about the issue, of, for example, of everything now in relationship to who has more power, right? Social power, who has more privilege, which equates to power. I mean, notice what they do is, so you're now defined basically by your, you're ultimately, you're, you're defined by your relationship to power. Um, and so what they've done is taken a creaturely magnitude, which is creaturely power, and made that the ultimate determination of our natures and everything we are. And see, this is the big, this is the big hole in all of this, because it is not. It's the infinite source who, give, who governs and gives all things, God the creator, that is the primary uh, determiner of the fact that we are and what we are and the ends for which we have. And so it's our relationship to those, not power, that determines uh, our character, our nature, and everything else. So you could have all these privileges, but doesn't mean you're abusing others. You could actually bearing fruit in a Christ-like way that are serving many people. And so this is something that they really have flawed right at the heart. But I think this, this, this taking a creaturely magnitude and making it the core place of defining ourselves, what we are and what we're here for, um, is, is in all of these variations. Yeah, yeah, I still, I still would like to kind of comb out a little bit this distinction between, say, you know, the true believers in kind of intersectionality from the, uh, I guess, uh, fellow travelers or the artists who, who you know, the aesthetes, yeah, for, you know, who are aligned with them. And I'm, I'm kind of more interested today in kind of focusing in on the the aesthetes because, frankly, that's. Uh, kind of my, the world that I'm, I'm coming out of in terms of my own personal family background. And um, the, uh, there are a few other things that uh, Lash has to say about uh, this whole, whole matter that I think is help, are helpful, particularly when, th- when we think about this particular group of people. Because, you know, the people I have in mind, they vote correctly, quote, correctly, uh, for all the right causes, but they really are not true believers, uh, they're just simply, you know, sort of on the bandwagon, uh, uh, just saying, hey, me too, and, and, you know, to use that me too expression in a different way. <laughs> but yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. So here's something, here's something else from Lash. Quote, in the heyday of the socialist movement, its attraction for intellectuals cannot be adequately explained without considering the way it overlapped with the bohemian critique of the bourgeoisie. Socialists and aesthetes shared a common enemy, the bourgeois Philistine, and the unremitting onslaught against bourgeois culture was far more lasting in its effects, in the West at least, and now probably in the East as well, than the attack on capitalism. I think that is so right on. And this is why David Brooks can actually write a book today, you know, called, you know, Bobos in Paradise. That was the the title of if I recall correctly, about sort of the wedding of the bourgeoisie with the bohemian, uh, because now the bourgeoisie uh, are themselves, uh, you know, sort of putting on airs. They want they 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 want to be uh, they want to distance themselves from this kind of uh, 
contempt that uh, was so common among you know socialists and seats back in the day. Now, th- this would be a good time to talk a little bit about you know who are the bourgeoisie. What is what are we talking about when we, we refer to someone as a philistine? You know, a lot of our listeners will th- say philistines aren't they in the Bible? Are, are, I mean, are, is is aren't we talking mm-hmm. about people in the Old Testament? No, a philistine is a, is a person who has no artistic uh, sense. A person who maybe another word that people would be familiar with that you know sometimes is used for for philistine is uh, kitsch. You know, this sort of like, you know, cheap uh, sort of plastic mass produced art. Uh, it appeals to this sort of, uh, I guess, uh, just uh, unsophisticated sentimentality. Uh, it's the kind of thing you see like maybe with, uh, oh, I don't know, um, those little figurines, uh, you know, that, that women liked so much here. Uh, was it? can't remember the name of the line, but anyway, you know, you, you, I think you get the, my, my drift. There's a kind of, uh, oh, uh, precious moments, precious moments. You remember those little figurines, precious moments? <laughs> so people who like yeah. that kind of stuff uh, are Philistines. Um, they're they're yeah, people it's... who like cheap uh, and sort of mass-produced, sentimentally sort of uh, over sort of uh, – I guess hyped or overload, you know, over overloaded um, things that you know grandmas like. You know, <laughs> if, you, if you get my drift, I don't mean to be too hard on grandmas, but uh, in fact, my my grandmother's pro- wouldn't have fit that profile at all. <laughs> but uh, so this sort of thing uh, is um, you know in view, and bourge- the bourgeois, you know, are, are people who. Uh, you know, uh, adhere to a set of uh, moral uh, restrictions that are intended to, I guess, make them productive and respectable uh, in a capitalist society. So, you know, the ability to defer gratification, the ability to work hard and be on time, all of these things, bathe, (laughs) all these things are bourgeois values. And if you are uh, you know, a, a bohemian or a socialist, you don't bathe, you don't show up on time, you get my drift <laughs> because you feel contempt or you're at least uh, communicating or, or uh, conveying contempt for those values, which uh, many, you know, bohemians and aesthetes believed were, you know, sort of serving a uh, an oppressive kind of uh, social uh, regime. Anyway, just to kind of give our folks a little bit of background yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And the irony of this is that the Bohemian revolt against or the socialist revolt against bourgeois values has won. Yeah. I mean, it is it is really, you know, it is it dominates the the mainstream media, it dominates Hollywood. Um, it is it's important in our political discourse all of these kinds of things and yet they still act as if they're in a war against these values of this oppressive culture that is dominating everything when in fact they're the ones who actually hold all the cultural power right yeah. you know they yeah. they they're completely unaware it seems of, of that um, and i think what ends up happening I, i'm reading a book called woke capitalism really interesting book in which it's arguing that the uh, that businesses that go woke do it because of a couple of reasons, not the least of which is 
to insulate them from criticism from from their other practices because they're now fellow travelers with the people who are doing the protests and all that kind of thing. It's a cynical move on the part of businesses. On the part of your artistes, I don't think it's quite as cynical, but I think it's just as self-serving ultimately in terms of their their um, the entire program. Because by identifying with these progressive causes and all of that, it enhances their reputation. It makes them more popular. Uh, it gets them attention. It gets them airplay. Uh, all of these kinds of things that feed into their ego, which is really ultimately what it's about. Right, right. And yeah. the I think um, the exasperation that many people feel, um, particularly people who are working class or maybe just have strong patriotic sentiments, they can see all of the, of the stuff that you just described, Glenn. They can see the, the hypocrisy mm-hmm. and uh, they don't have any voice. Uh, but the more that they, I guess, express what voice that they have, uh, they're actually take that, that voice is taken in, in, a, in a strange way uh, through this ideological lens, this kind of bohemian uh, sort of frame of reference, uh, they are painted as the oppressors, as you've noted, when in fact they have almost no control even over you know, you know their, their daily livelihoods anymore because they work for large woke corporations that could fire them you know, if uh, somebody in you know, HR sees a, a post uh, you know, on Facebook that uh, is uh, you know, unapproved or calls into question the, the values of wokeness, if, if you get my drift. So, yeah, we find ourselves in this really odd spot of the, of the people who are oppressed, who don't have a voice, are the people who are said to be the oppressors and uh, are the ones yeah. who are said to be controlling, you know, speech. Yeah, the ones that don't have time for leisure because most of them are trying to, to work and, and, and feed families and all of that, which is all seen as corrupt values, having families that you have to feed. They, I mean, it, it's, it's read with all this, this, uh, this distortive um, arrogance often, um, moral superiority when really the alternatives that are offered are, are not livable in, in the long in, in the long haul, and most of them don't live like that. Um, they just they just uh, castigate um, others uh, for not for not doing it. But there is a it is a strange again. It's kind of a point I was making earlier. It is a strange evil cocktail, if you will, that has allowed a society to be to be, and, and uh, you know not just one. I mean the West in particular and spreading to be so. Um, ready for this kind of incoherent view of things. I mean, you you really have. I mean, you, you talk about classic definitions of what is false as being that which isn't. Um, this is one of those examples. This is this is a lie. Um, this is a this isn't reality, um, and it's a sheer falsehood. And I don't think. It has the capacity, just like other variations of it, of sustaining itself endlessly. We don't know when. Um, we don't know how long. It will do a lot of damage. But any anything not built enough in relationship to reality will form cracks, and those cracks will 
widen. And, and the question is, what's the consequence then? And I, we, I think we've, we've raised that question in other episodes, um, you know, the possibilities, yeah. but, but this, what you have, you have, you're created, this situation is being created continuously where you're starting to literally call black, white, white, black, um, truth, false, false truth. Um, and it's got to be doing destructive things um, to, to right. just everyone's common way of referring and understanding anything. Or you, get, you, or you end up with a situation that I've seen many times, kind of closet uh, bourgeoisie and sort of uh, public bohemianism. So, you know, you, yeah. we've known people like this where, you know, they're known uh, publicly as standing for a particular set of, I guess, bohemian values. But then you actually go to, you know, visit them in their homes and they are about as bourgeois as you could possibly imagine, (laughs) even down to traditional sex roles. I mean, it's just (laughs) it just it's 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 full of uh, inconsistencies and and hypocrisy. Anyway, we should probably uh, begin to wrap things up here. Believe it or not, we're kind of getting to that time. I could say that you want to say something, though, Glenn. Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of intrigued by people who fall in the opposite direction, not the ones who are public bohemians, but private bourgeois, but people who live very conventional lives in a lot of ways, but who end up going off in other directions in their private life. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, people who do uh, LARPing, yeah. or, you know, or, or um, even to some extent escaping into video games, but I don't, I'm thinking less of that than, uh, than some of these people who, you know, who, who will uh, become neo-pagans, you know, yeah. or something like that as a way of sort of breaking out of what they perceive as the constraints that are on their lives uh, and, and their behavior in public. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I, that, that's something I'm probably going to be exploring a bit when we, uh, when I do, I'm doing a uh, conference on Tolkien um, in early October in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And that'll be one of the topics that I'm, I, I've been thinking a lot about that because of that conference, Yeah, you know, d- different ways of, of um, escaping um, the, the sort of uh, ruts that we get into in our daily lives. Uh, Tolkien thought escape was a good thing. Right, right. But I think that we can say that there are good and bad ways of escape. Right. And um, some of the, the, I mean, I know people who have very conventional jobs and, and families and things like that who just sort of go completely in kind of wild directions when they have time in their private life. Yeah. So that, that's, that's sort of the flip side of this, I think. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I think it has something to do with some of the, ways that we think about freedom today. We don't think of freedom as having a sort of a truthful expression, uh, just a self-expression. You know, when Christ says, right. you know, the truth will make you free. Uh, a lot of folks, I think, feel that's a non sequitur. I mean, if, if something is true, I mean, in the sense that it stands outside of me, then it somehow binds me and keeps me from being what I want to be. Uh, and maybe that's a, another subject uh, for another day, but I, I think, I think it's interesting that, there are these two different ways kind of of dealing with the bohemian, the bourgeois and and flipping them back and forth between these two groups. Anyway, um, anything you want to say as we wrap up, Tom? No, I think I said enough. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Well, we, we really do appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast. And by the way, we are in the uh, you know final stages of finalizing our tour of the Pacific Northwest. We're going to be in the Portland area on the 30th and 31st of October. We're going to be up in the Seattle area on the 2nd and 3rd. And we're going to be in Moscow on the 4th, Moscow, Idaho on the 4th and 5th. And when all of the details are worked out and the locations are finalized and the times are set, we will post all of that stuff on our website and uh, you'll be able to be a part of those events. Uh, we're looking forward to, to doing some live shows like we did at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. That was a lot of fun, by the way, and we'd love to do that again. And we're also in the process of getting all of our merch made because uh, uh, we've got a lot of folks who have expressed interest in buying our our, our pint glasses and our T-shirts and our hideous uh, Cerberus pugs with our three heads on them. <laughs> anyway, uh Thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really do appreciate your interest and support. Bye-bye.